Nature lovers travel halfway around the globe to sample its magical landscapes. It offers a refreshing blend of Polynesian, British, and Asian cultures. And it's sparsely populated, with more sheep than people. Of course, we're talking New Zealand. And that's where we're heading today on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Along with tips on outdoor adventure and some of the planet's most spectacular scenery, we'll learn about some of the newest attractions in Kiwi tourism, including hobbit spotting in locations filmed in The Lord of the Rings. New Zealand is the kind of place where you can go anywhere and you'll have a great time. And much closer to home, in fact, just south of the border, we'll also check in on the Baja California scene. From the gritty border towns to the fancy beach resort at Los Cabos, we'll make the ultimate Baja road trip, complete with whale watching, kayaks, lagoons, and desolate beaches. It's southern exposure today in New Zealand and Mexico's Baja Peninsula. Get ready for some new scenery coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. We're heading south today on Travel with Rick Steves. New Zealander Errol Hunt is joining us in a moment to introduce us to the fantastic ecological menagerie we call New Zealand. Its mix of cultures, natural beauty, and overall Kiwi charm makes the appeal of New Zealand irresistible. And for a drier landscape with the clearest blue sea imaginable, later in the hour we'll venture to Mexico's Baja California Peninsula. Danny Pomerley knows what to expect from the Mexican border towns and how to plan the ultimate Baja road trip, all the way down to Los Cabos. The relatively weak Hurricane Henriette hit the peninsula, and thankfully, damage is reported to have been minimal to the region's tourism infrastructure. Nature is the common denominator in our travels today as we explore two breathtaking destinations on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. Let's go down under right now, specifically New Zealand. Joining me is Errol Hunt. And Errol writes guidebooks for Lonely Planet on Australia, New Zealand, and South Pacific. And Errol is a Kiwi. Errol, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome, Rick. Is it derogatory to call you a Kiwi, or is that what you call yourself? No, not at all. Kiwis, um, yeah, what we call ourselves. But the, the fruit that you call a Kiwi in the U.S. is called a Kiwi fruit in New Zealand, so we don't have that confusion. <laughs> I just feel like I'd be calling a Hawaiian a pineapple, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but it's okay to call no, you a Kiwi. It's completely fine. That's great. Now, what is your heritage, actually? Well, um, my family's mostly Scottish, with a touch of Maori blood on my father's side, Napui. So. Okay. And is that unusual to have uh, Scots and Maori mix and so on? In, in, no, uh... there's, um, there's a lot of Scots in New Zealand. There's been a pretty long history of immigration from Scotland to New Zealand. Some people reckon that's why the accent got like it did. And uh, down in the, in the south of the South Island, there's a, a really strong Scottish culture. They do haggis and hurling and all the rest of it. Haggis and hurling in the in, yeah. in New Zealand? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's great, actually. Is the haggis as terrible in New Zealand as it is in Scotland? I can't answer that question because I haven't been game enough to try it. You know, I haven't met too many Scottish people or New Zealanders, for that reason, who have tried haggis. As uh, any Scotsman will not tell you, that's it's sort of intestinal lining stuffed with all sorts <laughs> of garbage meat, right? That's right. And some uh, stretcher. It's some kind of a demonstration of courage, I think. Yeah, right. That's what makes the Scottish people strong, just like the Norwegians eating their lutefisk and so on. Yep. Now, New Zealand uh, is about the size of Britain, but only 4 million people. And uh, you have about 2.5 million visitors a year. So that's that's quite a tourist industry for a, a relatively small country. What's yeah, the magic? Why, why do people it's... come to New Zealand? What, what gets them all excited about New Zealand other than the sheep? 
Um, <laughs> other than the sheep, the, well, the main thing is the landscape, which is why the the Lord of the Rings films were so successful for New Zealand tourism because they kind of reinforced that landscape thing. You know, even even if some of it was CGI. Well, so Lord of the Rings is basically giving you a New Zealand in the extreme kind of landscape. <laughs> yeah, and it was it was a bit, yeah. Has that been good for guidebook sales? I mean, uh, I bet when you write a guidebook on New Zealand, that's that's good news. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's definitely... Uh, the New Zealand guidebook's one of our, our biggest sellers, and um, the, the fact that tourism's been going up is, has definitely helped us as well. Is there actually a Lord of the Rings circuit where tour groups come in and they want to see this and that, just like there is Harry Potter in England? And uh... Yeah, there is. There's um, there's a couple of tour companies that do, do rings tours, as they call them. Hobbit um, spotting? And, yeah, Hobbit spotting. There's, um, where, where Hobbiton was set up um, in Matamata in the North Island, there's still... All the little hobbit holes are still there, with some with doors and stuff like that. You can go and have a look at that. Is that right? Well, I would think that they would have the people who put Lord of the Rings together would have scouted and chose the most dramatic scenery. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. So let's let's take that as a travel tip. Tell us where to get the most dramatic scenery, a la Lord of the Rings. There's actually a fantastic little guidebook by a guy called Ian Brody, which is um is aimed at travelers coming to New Zealand and wanting to find rings locations and it's just magnificent a little bit nerdy but it's got you know like a scene and a a picture of the scene and then it'll tell you exactly where to go and what direction to look in to see that same scene but the the really spectacular stuff is is mostly down in the south island along the the southern alps and um sort of kahurangi region in the north of the south island so if somebody is going to new zealand would it just be fun to rent the lord of the rings and watch the trilogy yeah, I, I reckon so. I mean, I love those films anyway, but um, it's it's quite a fun thing to do if you know. It's it's pretty easy to find out online where the locations are. I'm talking with Errol Hunt, and Errol writes the guidebook to New Zealand for Lonely Planet. And uh, Errol, give me a quick geographic overview. You got the North Island and the South Island. Are those the the formal names for those islands? Yeah, yeah, very very evocative names, aren't they? <laughs> I think they used to be New Munster and New Ulster, which I think they should have kept. They would have been lovely names. So now the best you can do is North Island and South Island. Yeah, afraid so. They've got lovely Maori names. Um, North Island's Ngāahia Maui, which is the fires of Maui, and the South Island's Te Wahi Pounamu. And you hear those a little bit, but um, what is the South? Uh, the, the North one is the Island of Fire. What was the South one? Te Wahipunamu is the waters of greenstone. Greenstone's like a, a jade that's found in the South Wow, Island. now that is poetic. Waters of greenstone, of jade. Yeah, the waters and of amazingly jade. enough, they replaced that with South Island. And the, and the, and the North Island is called the uh, Island of Fire? Uh, yeah, it's the fires of Maui. Maui was a sort of a demigod, and um, the fires refer to the, the volcanoes in the North Island. The fires of Maui, like the Hawaiian island Maui? Yeah, yeah, same Maui. Same guy? That's the same bloke, yeah. yeah very famous. Same bloke. Yeah, you guys get to call God's blokes, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. we're on a first name basis. Oh man, to live in New Zealand! So you got the <laughs> the fires of Maui on the north. I think you should run a little movement in your country there to do a literal translation from the Maori names and get rid of this North and South Island. Business. Yeah, I think you're right. I reckon <laughs> be uh, be fantastic. It's good for tourism. Good for guidebook sales. Yeah, yeah. Let's think about this. We got the word Maui, like the Hawaiian Islands, way down there in New Zealand, and I know that. Auckland has got half of all the indigenous South Pacific people are actually living in the city of Auckland. What's the deal with that? Yeah, it's got a massive Polynesian and um, Melanesian population in Auckland. I, I can't remember what the percentages are, but there's a huge number of Maori who live in New Zealand, in Auckland, sorry, as well, who are, of course, Polynesians. And then there's a lot of Pacific Islanders. So in a sense, Errol, that means that Auckland, a big city in New Zealand on the North Island, 
is actually the urban capital of the entire South Pacific. Yeah, it, it's referred to sometimes as the capital of Polynesia, which is a little bit grand. <laughs> yeah, well, but, something, um, something's yeah. got to be the capital. But I, I didn't think of New Zealand as Polynesian. I thought it, of it as more Scottish. Yeah, well, I mean, the South Island, definitely, because the South Island's got a lot fewer Pacific Islanders and Māori people, a lot more Pākehā, which is the, the New Zealand name for European New Zealanders. Tell me that again. Um, but the, in the North the Euro- Island... Europeans are called what? Pākehā. Pākehā? Yeah, yeah. When you think of the Māori culture, is that the same as the Polynesians? Yeah, very similar. All Polynesian cultures sort of have their own, you know, variations and... New Zealand Māori were, were slightly different to Cook Islands Māori, who were slightly different to Tahitians, which is sort of the way they came there. Um, probably um, had developed war into a slightly more refined art than anyone else. It was the main pastime. And different kind of artwork and carvings and stuff. But the language is very, very similar to Tahitian or, or Hawaiian. Okay. And um, the culture is pretty similar too. Errol, is it safe to say that the uh, ethnic differences between the various uh, tribes and peoples of the South Pacific region is about as distinct as the uh, cultural differences between European people? Yeah, probably. Oh, well, at least with Polynesians. Melanesians tend to be a lot more diverse. The Melanesian countries weren't as, as easy to travel around in. Um, but Polynesians, a thousand years ago, there was an enormous number of trips back and forwards between the islands. So the languages were all very consistent and the mythologies were very consistent. And that's why there's Maui in the Samoa and Tahiti and everywhere. So people in New Zealand uh, nicknamed Kiwis. It's not derogatory. Uh, yep. I always think of Australia and New Zealand sort of as together, but I'm sure that there's distinctions between Australia and New Zealand that people who are Aussies and Kiwis would recognize very, very clearly. Uh, when you speak with uh, Australians, do they pick up your accent? Uh, do you have some kind of slang that uh, creates even a language barrier? I guess there's a few phrases that, that Australians don't quite get. Australians will definitely pick up a New Zealand accent. We in New Zealand made vowels illegal about 100 years ago. So New Zealand tend... outlawed vowels. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we Give me an example. With very clipped accents. Um, my accent's probably kind of <laughs> become a bit milder since I've been in Australia and learned how to use vowels. But a, a full-on New Zealand accent would be, um, we're going down to the shop to pick up some fish and chips. So it's a lot more clipped. I think I um, can tell you're from Scotland. Yeah, it's <laughs> maybe. Like that, isn't it? And then we like to put A at the end of every sentence. It's kind of like a full stop. I'm going right. to the shop, eh? eh? It, was a, it was good fun going to the shop, eh? And do you call everybody mate like Australians do? Australian? Uh, That's no, more of an Aussie not, thing, not isn't it? Not quite as much. Yeah, there's um, cuz is probably more common in New Zealand. What is? Cuz. What's short that? for cousin. Really? You call each other cousin? Yeah, uh, yeah we're, we're good mates. <laughs> That's sweet. Mates call each yeah. other cousin. All right. All this came about a long time ago. We have this Polynesian wonderland, and here come the Europeans. Tell me a little bit about the European heritage and the Captain Cook heritage and so on. Yeah, well, Captain Cook came down and, and put New Zealand on the maps. When was that? Oh, 1700 and something. School history was a long time ago now. There's still a lot of New Zealanders quite into their history, and there's, there's a lot of things that you can see around. You know, Captain Cook was here, and this might be his anchor or this might be his, you know, belaying pin or something like that. There's a couple of statues of him. And he sailed around New Zealand twice in each direction and then came back twice more. It sort of ended up being a bit of a favourite stopping point down the bottom of the South Pacific. Yeah, and a lot of history that we read now is, is based on what Cook and Banks 
you know, recorded when they came to New Zealand that first time. And if you're looking for uh, European colonial heritage, uh, what cities are best for that? In the, the, the far north of the North Island, in Bay of Islands, there's no cities in the Bay of Islands, but there's towns, Waitangi and Russell or Kororareka, have got a lot of old English sort of colonial history, um, and also a lot of old Māori history, because that was one of the first places it was settled huh. in So New that's Zealand. on the very, very north tip of the North Island? Yeah, well, we're close to the northern tip, and it's... Um, Waitangi is where the, the Treaty of Waitangi was signed, which is when New Zealand became part of the British Empire and, and the, a treaty was signed with the local Māori people. And yeah. Seven seven three 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 rick That's our phone number, and radio at ricksteves.com is how you reach us by email. We continue exploring New Zealand with Arrow Hunt in a moment, and later in the hour, we'll explore our options in Mexico's sunny Baja California Peninsula. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. My name is Elisabeth Van Est and I'm from the Netherlands and I'm going to mention one of our tongue twisters. It says, Moeder snijdt zeven scheefsneden brood. That means, Mother cuts seven crooked slices of bread. Moeder snijdt zeven scheefsneden brood. <laughs> That's so good. New Zealand is our destination right now. Then we'll road trip down Mexico's Baja Peninsula. Whether it's lush fjords down under or desolate lagoons just south of the border, we're enjoying plenty of southern exposure today on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Errol Hunt, and he writes The Lonely Planet Guide to New Zealand, and we've got Jim on the line in Bellingham, uh, planning a trip to New Zealand, I believe. Hi, Jim. Thanks for your call. 
Oh, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, do you have a question for Errol? Yeah, uh, my wife and I are planning on taking a trip to New Zealand in the next couple of years where we'd probably go for about six weeks or so, and we were wondering about renting an RV and camping. Are there a lot of campgrounds there? Or are you allowed to camp outside the campgrounds on, on public land? Six weeks sounds fantastic, Jim. <laughs> There's a lot of people who travel in RVs in, in New Zealand. It's really well set up for it. The camping grounds are really well set up for RVs. Some of the roads are, <laughs> you might find, pretty narrow and <laughs> interesting. A lot of people who go to New Zealand and, and drive overestimate how far they can drive in a day mm -hmm. um, because the roads are, are quite narrow and winding, which is, you know, part of the appeal of being in these out-of-the-way places once you're off the main roads. You're not allowed to camp just anywhere at all, although, you know, it's it's pretty common to see RVs just pulled up and camped somewhere for the night. But if a council person comes along in the morning, they'll they'll probably knock on the window and ask you to move along. Uh, but there's a commercial camping grounds and then there's um, council camping grounds. There are places where you're allowed to do just free camping without paying, but there are only set places and you have to you always have to ask the visitor information centres to find out where those are in a local area. And then the Department of Conservation, which administers the national parks in New Zealand, also runs about two or three hundred other campsites, some of which are accessible by car and some would be accessible by RV, and they usually have more limited facilities. They won't have like a communal kitchen and, you know, dining room, but they'll have, um, you know, toilets or something like that. Does it make sense to just rent an RV for somebody to fly into New Zealand, rent an RV that's fully equipped, and then enjoy uh, the campgrounds for their primary way of eating, sleeping, and transportation? Yeah, definitely. It's fairly expensive to rent an RV. It doesn't work out as a, a lot cheaper than renting a car and just staying in accommodation. So there's a, there's reasonable uh, hotels then? Yeah, oh yeah. Sort of budgety to mid-range accommodation in New Zealand is really good. You can stay in um, the equivalent of a hostel in the nice rooms, the nice double rooms. It's really cheap. And, and really nice rooms. And, and you also have the benefit of, you know, staying with a whole lot of other travellers and you can pick their brains and find out what's going on and where should I go and what should I see. Uh, although campgrounds are good for that as well. In New Zealand, I don't know if this is the same in the US, but the campgrounds all have like a, a communal area for cooking and, and for sitting around playing pool, watching TV games. You meet a lot of other travellers there and a lot of New Zealand travellers. So you can find out where they're going and what they're doing and talk to them. Sounds like a fun way to connect with the locals. Does, does that make sense, Jim? Yeah. Do most of the, the campgrounds have hookups for the RVs, the electric and water and that sort of thing, or are most of them more geared towards camp, just tent camping? Um, yeah, the, the commercial and, and council ones all definitely have hookups for RVs, water and everything. Maybe like 50% of the people there, will, or maybe even more, will be staying in um, caravans or RVs. The little Department of Conservation ones don't have that kind of setup. They'll just have very, very minimal facilities. All right, Jim, thanks for your question. Great, thank you. Good thanks, luck Jim. on your trip. Thanks. Bye. I'm talking with Errol Hunt, and he writes the Lonely Planet Guide to New Zealand. Errol, if you're just getting a quick overview, if somebody wants to go to New Zealand for a couple of weeks, I know it's probably the touristic sort of uh, obvious, but how would you orient people? What's the best two weeks that New Zealand has to offer? I tend to not move around much when I travel, so I'll base myself in one place and, you know, I'd probably only go to two places off somewhere for two weeks. But if you wanted to see a, a bit of the country and get an idea of what you like and then go back and spend more time in different places, the big tourist spots and 
you know, they're tourist spots for a reason because they're quite magnificent, would be Rotorua in the North Island and um, Queenstown Monica in the South Island. And Rotorua has got a very strong Māori population and Māori culture is really strong there. There's all these great cultural things to do. There's also this amazing geothermal stuff to look at. That Māori name that I said, the fires of Maui, is, refers to like all the geothermals, you know, volcanoes and, and um, geysers and boiling mud and stuff like that. And there's some quite spectacular stuff around Rotorua to see, as well as some great native bush and, and birds and stuff. So you say geysers um, instead of geysers, huh? Uh I think I alternate. <laughs> I'm never quite sure. <laughs> I want to get the Kiwi slang. Okay, geezers. <laughs> and then in the South Island, Queenstown Wanaka is towards the southern end of the Southern Alps, and it's just absolutely spectacular scenery down there. These great jagged mountains, like the the really incredible scenes in the Lord of the Rings, were from down near Queenstown Wanaka, and it's also absolutely crazy with travellers. Um, it's the kind of place that you really have to know that you know you can't go in there and and think I'm going to have this town to myself. Yeah, so it's a it's a big place, but the tourists are probably all, all gathered together in some of the same spots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a good reason for it, because it really is a, an absolutely beautiful town. Uh, John from Pittsburgh emailed us, and he says, two thumbs up for the Atomic Shuttle. I think it's one of the best buses in the world. You don't need a car to look for the yellow-eyed penguins if you use this bus in the South Island. And he said, also, how long in advance should I make reservations for the Milford Trek? Tell us about the Atomic Shuttle there, Errol. Um, the Atomic Shuttle, there's a, a whole lot of small privately run shuttle companies that, um, that kind of supplement the main big national intercity bus network, and they are great. Like they're, they're much smaller, they're a lot more flexible. You can generally talk to the driver a lot easier than somebody who's concentrating on a on a massive bus. And they'll all, like I think Atomic runs to just South Island centres. So they'll all sort of have a section of the country that they'll do and they'll concentrate on that. Um, but there's a whole number of other shuttle buses that are equally great. So is it a, a circuit and every day the bus comes along and you buy one ticket and you can hop on and hop off like they have in Scotland? Yeah, or? I think a lot of them have flexible passes. So you can buy a pass right. for, you know, Z weeks or months or whatever and, and just find out the schedule and get on when you need to. Errol, uh, describe to me the crassest, most front door, high-end tourist scene in, in New Zealand, the tourist traps, and then we'll talk about getting off the beaten path. The tourist traps. Are there tourist traps? I mean, is there one place where all the cruise ships go or anything like that? Um, the two places I said before, Rotorua and Queenstown, they would be the, the real major, you know, tourist trail areas. That and Auckland as well, uh, which is the main city. But Auckland's partly because everybody's flying into Auckland, so they kind of have to go there. Right. Um, but there's not really anywhere where... You know, like I've, I've traveled to places where you just end up not wanting to talk to other travelers because you almost feel embarrassed. And um, there's not really anywhere in New Zealand that's like that. There's nowhere that's so absolutely crammed with tourists. Sounds just like a wonderland that way. It just sounds like a great place to visit. You write a guidebook, but in your guidebook you recommend uh, let the guidebook go and just head out on your own. Tell me uh, what you mean by that. Yeah, well, we're we're very aware that people who use guidebooks, they can often end up using it, you know, like a, an instruction manual, like this is the only place I can go, it's the place in the book, and, and it, cre it can actually create part of that tourism trail. So everybody's going here because it's in the guidebook, and then they all go here because it's in the guidebook. And um, not only does that mean they have a less great time because they're, they're surrounded by other travellers and not locals, it also means that it doesn't spread out the benefits of tourism to, to the whole country. And New Zealand 
is the kind of place where you can go anywhere and you'll have a great time. So, yeah, in this guidebook, we actually said, put the guidebook down, you know, put it at the bottom of your pack and just pick some place at random and go there. We get a lot of readers' letters and people report that that kind of travel is when they have the most amazing, unique time when they're traveling, when they've actually just gone and done something completely random and, you know, they're the only traveler in this little town. And You know, when you think of New Zealand, other than the natural wonders, there's no... Eiffel Tower or Leaning Tower, our, our, our famous site as such, it's just the charm of the countryside and I think the beauty of the people. So you want to get into a place where you're a part of the party instead of the part of the economy and get to know the people. What's a good way for a tourist to connect with the people? Or is there a pub scene like in Britain? Yeah, there definitely is. I think the main thing, um, or what I try and do when I travel, is is to go and do local stuff Like rather than you know going on a, like a backpacker bus, going on the local bus. And um, rather than going to the the bar downstairs from the hostel, going to the bar across the road, I think it's pretty easy in New Zealand to connect with locals. You just go to go to low key things, go and watch a local rugby game, and you know, or a local netball game, or go to a school fair or something like that. And New Zealanders love travellers because you know they're on the other side of the world, and there's a little bit of that. We're very small, you know, how cool that people want to come and see us. <laughs> so. If people work out that you're a traveller, they'll always come up and, you know, where are you going, what are you doing, How? what do you think so far, sort of thing. I love that idea. And it's, that's the key, is just to go to a rugby game, like you said. Or, or you know, you're driving around, you see a, a grade school um, talent show, drop in and sit in the in the back and enjoy just a little slice of the local community. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's far more genuine and unique kind of an experience than, you know, going to watch the All Blacks play or going to yeah. um, some massive concert in, in Auckland or something right. like that. Now let's talk a bit about the Milford Track because that is the most famous hike, isn't it? Yeah, the Milford Track. I, I haven't actually done it. I've been to Milford, but I haven't done the track. And it's just an incredible area. <laughs> it has blinding amounts of rain, like three metres a year or something like that. And um, it, it just rains all the time and, and then just washes off all these hills. So there's just streams and waterfalls and it, it, it's quite a spectacular area. John was asking if he had to book in advance. Was that what yeah, his question right. was? Mm-hmm. Over the busy period, which is October to April, you definitely have to book. If you just turn up, it'll be absolutely full. And they, they do that deliberately. They, what do you mean by full? It, is it a park where they only let so many people in? Yeah, you actually have to book your, your travel and then, you know, move from hut to hut at the time that they say. So that's one night at each hut, which is a little bit restrictive. But the reason for that is they, they don't want it to be absolutely crowded with walkers. They want you to be able to walk, you know, on your own and not see anybody else. So this would be the premier national park hiking zone in New Zealand, is that right? Um, it, it's one of the big... They have these nine walks, which are called the Great Walks, and um, Milford Track is one of those. And it's definitely one of the most famous, but there's other ones, the Hefe Track and um, Waikaramoana Walk up in the North Island are also pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. But they all do get booked out, and they have restricted numbers on all of them to make it you know, a more amazing experience. So you just book that, uh, your guidebook will explain how to book that, and I suppose you just do it by the internet. Yeah, if you get on the internet and um, do a bit of a search for Milford Track, it's pretty easy to find the, the information you all need. Right. And the, the Department of Conservation has got a website which includes all that information and how to book and when okay. to book. You go to New Zealand that. and you're going to check out the natural wonders for sure, but you want to get one dose of urban New Zealand and the big cities that come to mind are Wellington, Christchurch and Auckland. Which one would you focus on and why? Um, I would focus on Wellington. I absolutely love Wellington and I'm not from there, so I'm not completely biased. It's actually the third largest city and it's fairly small. I think it's only 
like 200,000 people or something like that, 300,000. Mm-hmm. Um, but it feels a lot more cosmopolitan and culturally happening than Christchurch, definitely. And it's partly because Wellington's kind of built around this harbour and it's got fairly steep hills behind it. And the whole city is kind of compressed. So everything has to happen in one little area. Like in Christchurch, it's really spread out. Things happen all over the place. Auckland's quite massive. Things happen right. you know, all over the place. Um, in Wellington, you go there and you go to the sort of downtown area and it really feels happening. And then you get in your car and drive off and 10 minutes later, you're driving through native bush. <laughs> it's fantastic. And it's also Wellington, um, like Auckland's got a very high Pacific Island culture, um, Pacific Island population. And you really feel that in Wellington. There's a whole lot of Pacific Island things going on all the time that you can go along to, which is great. Now, we've talked about New Zealand for a little while and we haven't even mentioned sheep. <laughs> How can I appreciate the sheep culture of New Zealand? Hmm. Are there more sheep than people? Oh, yes. There's 40 million sheep, um, which is down on, I think when I was growing up, they always used to say there was 60 million or 80 million. So hmm. there's a lot less than there used to be. I don't know. Sheep are just sheep to me. <laughs> but there's a lot of places where you can go to farms and, and actually work on farms. There's an organization called Willing Workers on Organic Farms, I think, Woof. Mm-hmm. And so you can go and like volunteer to work on these farms and... Um, you know, help out on the farm and, and stay there and, and they'll feed you and give you a bed, uh, which I think is a fantastic thing. If you've got time, it's a fantastic thing to do because there's no other way of getting so involved in the culture. Like you'll be staying with a local family and they'll be introducing you to their friends and, you know, you get to work in the on the farm. I used to work on a farm. I loved it. So. Then you're going to eat some Marmite or Vegemite? Yeah, Marmite. We have Marmite. <laughs> what is the difference? There's Vegemite in Australia, right? Well, yes, there's both Vegemite and Marmite in New Zealand, but Marmite is made in New Zealand, so it's almost a, a patriotic thing to to choose Marmite. What does it taste like? It's very, very salty. It's probably, if if you haven't grown up eating one or the other, they'd probably both be quite equally, <laughs> similar equally and remarkable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, eat it. And but, I've uh, had a little bit, and I just thought, how can people eat this stuff? Yeah, that's right. All right, getting away from Marmite or Vegemite, I want one great cuisine experience in my New Zealand trip. What would it be? Right. Um, I'd say seafood. I was I was going to say hangi, which is like a, a Maori meal, but it'd have to be seafood. Seafood. There's a whole lot of really great places when you're driving around New Zealand. And, you know, New Zealand's small and, and long and narrow, so you can never really be more than about 200 k's from the coast. If you're driving along the coast, there's always these little tiny booths set up that are selling crayfish or smoked kawai or, or shellfish or something like that. And you just stop grab a crayfish and go and sit on the wharf and eat it. Sounds oh, great. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm talking to Errol Hunt, who contributes to the Lonely Planet Guide to New Zealand. Errol, if you were to have a great trip to New Zealand and uh, write a journal and put on the cover of your journal one photograph that sums up your experience best, what would that photograph be? Um, coincidentally, this is actually the photo which is on the book. <laughs> My favorite place in New Zealand is the East Coast. The East Coast of the North Island is near where I grew up, and it's a a little bit kind of wild west that's cut off from you know there's no reason to drive through the east coast it's just kind of stuck out on the side it's got a pretty small population about 5,000 people in the whole region um, about 50% Māori it's the place where you're most likely to hear Māori spoken in a shop or the park or something and it's also a place where you'll just see people riding around on a horse on the way to the shop or, or whatever and the the book that's just come out we've got a photo of a guy on the east coast riding his horse with a surfboard under his arm 
And there was a bit of debate when we chose this photo because people were going, oh, look, it's obviously posed. You know, they've just stuck a board under this guy's arm and put him up on a horse. And I had to argue for it and say, no, this is the East Coast. You actually will see this on the East Coast. There's a guy, he's not a Scotsman. He looks like a, a, no, that's a, right. a real New Zealand Maori, yeah. but a modern no, guy. I love too because he's not... He's a modern you know, guy. He's, he's not, not painted or anything like this. Yeah, just he's a not painted. Guy. He's not wearing a flax skirt. He's right. just wearing a you know a raincoat. And... But he's Maori. He's galloping on his horse across the beach with a surfboard. Sounds yeah, like uh, yeah. there's a, a many dimensions to New Zealand. Errol Hunt, thank you so much for sharing uh, about the wonders of New Zealand. Thanks, Rick. next southern destination is just south of the U.S. border. Come along as we explore the fun and miss the potholes of Mexico's Baja California, from the gritty streets of Tijuana to the trendy resort hangouts at Los Cabos. A few weeks ago, a Category 1 hurricane flooded the streets there and destroyed many of the plywood shacks that house the region's poorer residents. But reports indicate little damage to the peninsula's tourism infrastructure and the locals are eager and ready for visitors to complete the return to life-as-usual Baja style. We're getting to know our neighbors and enjoying a little fun in the sun at the same time, next on Travel with Rick Steves. Hola, amigos. Buenos días desde Madrid. Mi nombre es Federico García y viajo con Rick Steves. I said, good day from Madrid. My name is Federico García and I travel with Rick Steves. En español, en español, en Spanish, I said, Buenos días desde Madrid. Mi nombre es Federico García y viajo con Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're looking for fun in the sun. South of the border, how about Baja California? Joining us today, a man who writes the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Baja California, Danny Pomerley. Danny, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, you've done a lot of traveling, and your passion is Baja. Give us a quick overview. What's the, what's the big deal with Baja? Baja is, Baja is great to get out and play outside. I really, that's for me, that's what it's all about. It's, there's water everywhere, surrounded on both sides, you know, on the west coast by the Pacific and on the east coast by the Sea of Cortez. And there's kayaking and surfing and hiking and fishing. And it's just endless what you can do down there outside. Now, to me, when I think of uh, Baja California, I think of tacky tourist towns right south of the border, mm-hmm. Ensenada, Mexicali, Tijuana, and then I think of vast expanses of scenic desert country, uh, national parks and, and road trips, and then uh, the big resort in the south coast, uh, Cabo San Lucas. Let's talk first about the quick trips from San Diego and uh, just near the border. We've got Tijuana, Mexicali, Ensenada. What are the pros and cons? Well, one you forgot was Tecate, which for me, along of the three border towns, that's mm-hmm. probably my favorite town. And that's, that's about an hour from San Diego as well. Huh. Tecate is, a lot of people say it's the closest to a mainland Mexican town because it has a uh, central plaza and there's musicians hanging around. And it's really a relaxed town and has the slow pace and it's 
great place to spend a day. Um, Tijuana is great as well, but it's definitely not a relaxed-paced town. It does have parts that kind of meet that image of body border town, but it's also changing and becoming a very artsy enclave, and it's becoming known for its food. And it's almost a suburb of San Diego, isn't it? Yeah, practically. A lot of people, you know, live there and work in San Diego, and cultural weeklies and things will have music listings for San Diego and, oh. and Tijuana in the same publication. Is there like a fast-track lane for commuters that make the trip every day over the border? Yeah, but you have to qualify for that, so it doesn't really apply to most people right. that are going down there. Mexicali, now that's more kind of like Tijuana 20 years ago or something, I would imagine. No, Mexicali, is, it's a very modern city. It's kind of a car city. It's hard to walk around except for the um, the old center of town, which, you know, it has its tacky souvenir shop and places like that. The, the interesting thing about Mexicali, really, is the Chinese food, because it has a, a Chinese community there, and a lot of people go and chow down on Chinese food. Oh, well, it sounds like if I'm just going to nip over the border, Tecate is clearly the place to go to. Well, it depends on what you're interested in, but yeah, I would say, you know, for a nice relaxing day in Mexico, I think Tecate is great. And if you don't mind driving the extra hour Ensenada, which, which I, I love Ensenada. It's, it has a beautiful waterfront. It has great restaurants. Hmm. Um, there's, there's a lot to do there. Like in many border areas, you go one hour south, and it really you get a more of a, a relaxed and a real atmosphere, I would suppose. Yeah, and, you know, if you go from Tecate to Ensenada along Highway 3, you pass through the Guadalupe Valley, which is um, Mexico's wine region. And there are a dozen or so wineries along there that, that you can visit and wine taste and kind of get a feeling for old Baja and parts of it. So now that's really uh, up past the end of the bay there and is not really on the peninsula yet. Uh, but is the character of the road trip from Tecate down to Ensenada, does it feel like Baja, California? Yeah, it does. It does. You know, it passes through mountain scenery. And after you see all of Baja, there's so many different parts to it that nothing becomes stereotypical of Baja except for that central area with the giant cacti, you know? Okay. You mentioned something, uh, Danny, earlier that Tecate was the town that has that mainland Mexico feel, and that was my general impression. I love the colonial circle in Mexico because the wonderful little squares, it's got this sort of old-world elegance, I think. Do you know what I'm talking about there? Yeah. You don't really find that. on. You don't go to Baja for that, really, do you? Not really. You do find it in some towns, but it's not... It's so different from mainland Mexico, right? Uh, culturally and in terms of its architecture, just because it was so isolated for so many years. Well, it sounds like one of the real reasons to go to Baja is to enjoy one of the world's great road trips. Take us driving down the Baja Peninsula. How, you said it's like 3,000 miles long, a uh, very narrow peninsula. Uh, what are the precautions? Would you uh, focus on the East Coast, the West Coast? Take us on this road trip. Okay, the, um, the 3,000, that's 3,000 miles of coastline. If you go all the way down, going in and out every bay and all the way back up the... Uh, the inland side. The peninsula itself is about 775 miles long. The Highway 1, the Transpeninsular, that's the main highway from Tijuana all the way down to Cabo San Lucas, and that's just over 1,000 miles long. And you generally stick to that when you're driving? You can stick to that, and people do, depending on where they're going, but you can get, I mean, there are so, there are thousands and thousands of miles of dirt roads that you can get off on and get lost on if you're not careful and just explore. 
a lot of people will drive down to the southern tip in two days. They'll go from hmm. Tijuana to Guerrero Negro and spend the night and then keep going. And, thousand and, miles in two days, so they're moving out. They're, that, yeah. that, that assumes a, a pretty good road then. Yeah. It's paved the whole way. It's, um, it's narrow. Right. When you're passing big rigs, it can, it can feel a bit dodgy at times. And you get a sense of population sparsity there, not a lot of traffic. Yeah, once you're south, you head south from Ensenada, and then once you're south of the town of El Rosario, you kind of enter into nowhere, and you get these views that just go on forever across desert. And That's when the Highway 1 goes inland from the coastal drive south of San Diego. Exactly. Tell me uh, just a few precautions. Should you take four-wheel drive? What about car insurance? Does it work down there? Do you need to be concerned about quality of gas? You have to have insurance. And you have to have insurance through a Mexican company. There's a bunch that you can purchase online, uh, over the phone, or in California right before you cross the border. But it's but you get you got to have it, and the minimum is liability. So you, that's a legal requirement. Your American insurance will not cover you down there generally. No, it won't. There, it won't cover you. Are there just little um, tiny offices north of the border where you can stop by and and go through the paperwork and you're done? Yeah. Yep. So it's it's not a big deal. It's just a small expense and something you need to do. Yeah, yeah. It's um and if you're going down for more than a couple weeks it usually is cheaper to just buy a monthly or six month policy and the easiest way to do that is is over the phone. Is it expensive? Let's see, mine I ended up getting full coverage and it cost me I think it was about a hundred and sixty dollars for six months. Hundred and sixty dollars for a six month trip. And if you're going down just for a week or ten days, are you essentially paying the same thing? Uh, you're paying close to that. They have weekly rates and, and right. different rates. As you drive down the Baja Peninsula, do you get a sense of a colonial history? or uh, Tell me about the, any missions you might encounter. Uh, missions are really one of the things about Baja that bring that history right up to the surface. And, and there's some just absolutely beautiful ones like San Borja, which is near Bahia de Los Angeles, with L.A. Bay, people call it. And there's another beautiful one in Mulejé. The original one is in Laredo. Some of them are preserved beautifully, and others you can barely see, you know, some mounds that are left of them. What's your single favorite mission experience when you're down there as far as sightseeing the colonial past? My favorite, as of yet, and I haven't seen them all, is, is San Javier, which is just outside Laredo, and it's, it's in the, um, the Sierra de la Giganta, which is a spectacular, jagged mountain range, and you drive this dirt road out you know, into the middle of nowhere, it feels like. Why is it your favorite? Just because it's so beautifully preserved and it's in a tiny village that just seems like it hasn't changed, you know, development hasn't really hit it. People are friendly and, and it's just... Sounds great. What's the name of that and where is it? What's it near? That is, the name of it is Mission San Javier and it's near Laredo. <laughs> Uh, Denny, let's get right down to Cabo San Lucas. I think a lot of Americans fly right into Cabo. That is their Baja experience. You could call it sort of the ultimate party town, I think. Uh, <laughs> what, what is the scene like? Is it an under-35s kind of rowdy, hedonistic thing, or is it uh, older travelers down there enjoying the ambience? Uh, it's really a mix. It started out popular with fishermen, with people going down there and hanging out and fishing. And and now, you know, with the booming resort town that it is, it's become really popular with a younger crowd. But it's not quite 
you know, as crazy as Cancun, partially because it's it's really expensive. <laughs> so Mazatlan, for instance, would be cheaper. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what Mazatlan prices are like, right. but um, I would. I'm guessing that Mazatlan would probably be cheaper. How would you compare? If somebody's just wants to go somewhere for a, a fun Mexican beach resort, and you're mm-hmm. debating between Puerto Vallarta, Mazatlan, Acapulco, and Cabo San Lucas, just in in real general terms, how does uh, Cabo differ from mainland West Coast of Mexican uh, resorts? Cabo has kind of grown up very recently, so. I think one of the unique things about Cabo San Lucas is the water. The water down there is so pure and so clean and so blue, and you just don't see that somewhere like, um, especially somewhere like Acapulco, where the water's been polluted. And that is changing with all the development that's happened in Cabo San Lucas, but it's a beautiful spot. For so it's a modern, more of a modern resort with great uh, water sports, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, it, it's definitely a, a modern resort feel. There's nothing, say, one of the things about Puerto Vallarta is you have that old town there that's so right. romantic and beautiful, where in Cabo San Lucas you just don't have that. If you're going to go there, you, you kind of want to expect to just be sitting in a resort and sitting on the beach. Sport fishing, golf, beach activities. Exactly, sort of yeah. yeah. And I recommend that people rent a car and get out of there for, you know, a little while. It's great sitting on the beach and, and lounging by the pool, but it, you're right there, and there's so much to explore right near there. That All right, well, let's say it's a quick trip down. We'll talk about excursions in a minute, but I'm in Cabo. I just want the ultimate great Cabo San Lucas vacation, and everything goes right. What are going to be the highlights for me? What are the couple of three or four experiences I'm going to treasure as travel memories? Uh, Snorkeling is going to be a big one. There's great snorkeling all along there, and you can you can do it as part of a tour. You can get on a bus, and you can go to uh, one of the little bays along the corridor just outside of Cabo. A boat ride over to El Arco, which is just around the, the beach from Cabo San Lucas, and that's the famous arch. Is that the Land's End kind of? That's Land's End, yeah. So Land's End, you got a feeling of Land's End there? Yeah, you do. It's, you really get that feeling if you've driven down. Right. <laughs> Now, sport fishing. Uh, I've never, you know, caught something that weighs more than me. Are, are, are people actually going on there and rookies going out and, and having these, uh, like, incredible fishing experiences? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really amazing how rich the fish life is there and how much fish people do catch. One thing is that, that a lot of people recommend that you only catch what you're going to eat and that you make sure, you know, you're going to get whatever you catch on ice immediately so it doesn't end up thrown away when you get back. Catch a giant tuna, couldn't you? Yeah, you can get. There's tuna. There's marlin. There's halibut. That the list is endless, and it depends on the season when you're down there and when you're fishing. But so you yeah, catch you a hundred pound marlin, you're not going to go home for a long time. <laughs> exactly. Eat a lot of marlin there. Well, of course, you're going to enjoy the sort of the hedonism and the decadence in Cabo San Lucas, and uh, then you're going to rent a car and you're going to make an excursion. So I think this is something that you really want to do when you get all the way down there is enjoy the beach, but you can rent a car for a day or two. What would be the highlights? What would be your goals as you get a, a good dose of the quintessential Baja wild expanses? Um, let's see. If I had a car for two days, I would probably drive over to the East Cape Road, which is the road that winds up the coast out of the Pacific and into the Sea of Cortez. And it's just beach after beach. And it's really beautiful because you have, you know, the desert scenery and the cactus coming down to the ocean. And there's still a lot of it that's escaped to development. So I would do that. And then in the other direction, I would, you could either head inland and explore some of the interior, 
and, you know, little villages like Candelaria, I think is the name of one, and let's see here, like Santiago and El Triunfo. These are all towns that are inland and kind of give you a sense of what the old ranching life was like. And are there uh, actual indigenous people there, or is it all expats and, uh, you know, people that are tied in with tourism? Um, the population in Cabo San Lucas... Not in Cabo San Lucas, but if you get out into the into the countryside, small towns. Yeah, there, it's mostly mestizo, which is people of mixed indigenous and European heritage. And then in the north, there's some small indigenous populations like the Kumeyaay and, and Pai Pai and that left. But you really don't, you don't see them a lot. Now, Danny, if you're comparing La Paz and Cabo San Lucas, uh, just in a nutshell, how do, they, how do they compare? Cabo San Lucas is, like we said, is a resort. You know, you're going there, you're sitting on the beach, you're drinking pina coladas and margaritas and living it up. And La Paz is one of my favorite cities or towns in, on the whole peninsula. It's like Tecate, it's kind of more Mexican than hmm. a lot of other places along the coast. And it has a beautiful long waterfront and uh, great tacos and good restaurants. And from there, you can kayak it just offshore or um, the Isla Espiritu Santo and fantastic kayaking. And it's just 20 or 30 miles from Cabo San Lucas, isn't it? It's about, no, it's further than that. It's about a three-hour drive. Okay, so you fly into Cabo San Lucas and La Paz mm-hmm. would be a reasonable but probably if you wanted to mix them both together, you'd it'd sort of balance each other out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, also from La Paz, you can catch a ferry, can't you, to the west coast of Mexico? Yep. Mm-hmm. You could uh, then extend your trip and not have to drive all the way back up the Baja Peninsula if you drove down and you wanted a uh, mainland experience on the way home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could do that. Danny Parmerly, author of The Lonely Planet Guide to Baja, California. Danny, on your last research trip, what's the favorite discovery you made? Um, it was probably the moment, well, I drove, it, the, the peninsula of Vizcaino is a very isolated section of the coast, and it sticks out into the, to the ocean, and I drove out this long road and ended up in this little fishing village called Bahia Asuncion, eating tacos in a tiny little taco stand and looking out over a beautiful sea, and it was just me out there, and I, I think that was kind of one of those real magical moments that only Baja can give you. Not a hint of Cabo San Lucas. Not a hint. <laughs> All right, you get the resort at Cabo San Lucas, you get your uh, senior frog activity, and then you head for the villages and the magic, the sunset, the great outdoors of Baja California. Danny Pomerley, thank you so much. Happy travels. Thank you. I really appreciate you uh, having me on your show. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. You'll find more online in the radio section of our website. That's where you can look up information on today's program and listen to audio archives and extra features. Details are in the radio pages at ricksteves.com. People who help bring you travel with Rick Steves include communications support from Robin Stencil, Rachel Unk, and Sonia Grosset, 
and technical support from Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to ABC Radio in Melbourne, Australia for engineering help today. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next time for Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.